Welcome back to Honorable Evolution, a show that celebrates the world's healthiest people so that the rest of us can be inspired to go on honorably to ourselves, to our tribe, and to our planet. Today I have the great privilege to be joined by one of my heroes, Lei Moonwa. Moonwa is an internationally renowned Chinese-American documentary filmmaker, author, poet, educator, community therapist, and master diversity trainer. Oprah Winfrey produced a one-hour special on Moonwa's life and the impact of his film, The Color of Fear. This film, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful dialogues on race, oppression, and privilege that's ever been made. I don't know how many times I've seen it, and I know that every time I do, I move to tears. I think it's required viewing and experiencing for all North Americans. Moon Wa is founder and CEO of Stir Fry Seminars. They offer diversity trainings to help people learn to engage in authentic and healthy multicultural dialogue. I'll put a link below and you can go to his website to rent and stream his films and take online diversity trainings. So without further ado, the great Lei Moon Wa. I very much see this project that I'm doing as a, as a, um, uh, it's about health, you know, what is health? And, and I've very much been focused on community health. So my energy has really been going into how do we get the choir to get out and do stuff instead of just, you know, listening to NPR and agreeing. That's the eternal question, huh? How to get folks to get out of their heads into their hearts and actually do something. I was just watching, you know, and I was watching these group of protesters and I was joining them in, in Berkeley mm-hmm. over the Black Lives Matter. And one thing struck me was that I was watching the whites and the people of color, particularly blacks and mm-hmm. Latinos, standing next to each other, but never talking to each other, Yeah, kind of looking at each other, maybe looking yeah. at each other's signs. And then I noticed that when the um, organizers would get up and talk, they never once encouraged us to turn to someone next to us mm-hmm. and talk to each other. Yeah, And so as I've been watching this country, I realized that, that I don't fault people, to be honest, why they don't go deeper. I think that they, they're lacking a model for it. Mm-hmm. And so everything is very uh, detached. I remember a black man said the most profound thing a, black, a white person thinks they're doing about racism is to read a book and have a discussion. And I think that that's so true. It's, in other words, it's kind of detached. Yeah. It's, it's a third person experience. And, 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 and I think that, that, and then there's a thing going around for years, I met the founder and I, I confronted him about it, but he did wisdom circles, okay? So a person would have a staff and then they would share, then they would give the staff to the next person. No one was allowed to say anything about what the other person said. Mm-hmm. And they just said, you know, it's just, a, it's just so that everybody hears you. And then what I said is how white, how white male, because I said, I don't know of a single experience in my life that that looks like a human exchange. Mm-hmm. People say something back. People mm-hmm. respond to what you say and to how you're hearing. Yeah. I said, so I wanted them to look at, did you just rationalize that people would love to just be heard? 
so that you don't have to deal with the emotions, the anger, the hurt, the shame, the frustration. Mm -hmm. And then another person, you're afraid that if they say something, if they go next and react to it, that you don't know what to do with it. So I said, it's so sterilized. And so you somehow rationalize it into a whole way of talking, which I think then it means that all you think about conversation is just listening. But any good relationship will tell you it's about how you respond back. And that response back is what every couple, every family, every community or society is struggling with is how do I respond, respond back to you in a way that begins a relationship that it's not the end all. And so when we think about listening, we go, oh, it's all about listening, but it's, it's about really how, not only what you heard, what you heard touched you, but also what are you willing, how are you willing to, to engage into a relationship with that person yeah. and be prepared to make mistakes that might hurt the person. Yeah, we have this, uh, yeah. this stay within the lines culture, stay in your box and... Well, I think that, that what we're afraid of is that what happens if we do hurt somebody? Mm-hmm. In fact, I wrote this paper called, um, uh, it's called The Four Mythologies That White People Have. Mm-hmm. And one of those is that I'll say something that will hurt you. Yeah. And, and, and I always say, well, I, I'm just curious if, if you're in a marriage, in a partnership, or have children, people raise their hands. I said, how many of you told your children, particularly when they got born later on, is that I, I'm not going to have you stay in the relationship with me or keep you if we get into conflict? Mm-hmm. How many of you started your relationship off with, I'd like to be a partner with you, but as long as we don't have any conflict. Yeah. So in other words, but somehow yeah. when we get to diversity workshops, we want to make sure that nobody gets hurt or upset. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, and, I, and also we hope that everything will get resolved in a two hour, three hour, four hour workshop. Uh, and that somehow that's all there is that's needed for a diversity workshop or mm-hmm. a connection. So I said, so when white people are told that it's going to make last for the rest of your life, that we may end up in the two hours unresolved, that you may irritate me, angry, angry, yeah. frustrate me, then you'll have to stay in the relationship. And I think that's the harder part. Is, is that, no- do you think that's unique to white culture that um, we're, I mean, we're so conflict averse? Well, I'd like to propose that I am predominated by a white culture and so are you without even knowing it. Yeah. So that there's, I like to ask you all the things that you know about my Cantonese culture and have you had Asian friends and, and Latino friends in which you, could you tell me how you communicate differently than I do? Can you tell me how you, you deal with anger, how you deal with conflict, how you deal with hurt? Uh, could you tell me how you deal with leadership? What do you do? Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. You could tell me when you meet all your friends of color, do you ask them? Mm. Or did you just, or you just think that somehow we are the same and that we, we have a desire to connect and be happy. Mm. But in fact, uh, you live constantly in a, in a white culture every yeah. single day, every moment yeah. that I've had to adapt to. So in other words, mm. no one's ever asked me. I've never had any models of a Chinese, Cantonese approach to anything, whether it be therapy, whether it be teaching, mm-hmm. whether it be police or coaching or anything. And so, and so when you, when you ask me that question, all I know is I'm constantly under the surveillance, surveillance yeah. of white folks yeah. to stay within a certain, what they call normal, civilized, educated, yeah. uh, uh, professional ways of being. Yeah. And I'm saying this out loud because uh, 
even the very act of my saying this could be con consequences for me to say mm. it with clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's taken a lot. It's taken a lot of um, time and energy for me to see myself and continue to see myself. And um, this this conflict averse kind of um, keep the peace mentality that I think is just is very much a part of the the Protestant you know Mayflower culture that's still here. Yeah, and isn't it funny that they came here? And uh, a friend of mine we were just talking about is, and when they met the American Indians, then suddenly they wanted them to convert. Going. <laughs> They wanted to them to learn English, mm -hmm. and, it, and and that still goes on today. Yeah, people have no idea, and so and then by the way, they were um, escaping religious persecution, and then they found themselves perpetuating that still yeah. today, and yeah. so those and so in fact, I was just uh, in in one of the, the scripts which I'm uh, we're filming this this uh, Saturday by about uh, ten people, and one of them is a Muslim story about. Um, he and his friends are all on the plane. They just had a wonderful time in Minneapolis. And um, uh, this woman hears them talking in, in Arabic. And uh, she goes to the host, the airline host and says, uh, I think I smell smoke. Mm. And she points to them. Mm -hmm. The airline hostess calls, goes over there and says, I hope you're not smoking. You know, you can get a lot of trouble. And then she says to, you know, everybody's giving them looks like, what are they up to if we smell smoke? So they, they get rid of, they have three rows get taken off the airplane for questioning. All the other three rows come back immediately, except the one that the Muslims are under. And they get asked all these series of questions. Mm -hmm. Then when they go back on the plane, everyone's looking at them. Yeah. And then he talks about how that affected him for the rest of his life. And I, so I think that, that that difference that we're all talking about stands out and, and that we still haven't come to a place where we, we celebrate, we eat, and we dance to differences, but we don't necessarily embrace it or, or make good use of it. Or, yeah. And we don't embrace it in terms of as an equal relationship with yeah. someone else. What I see so much of what's happening now, and I see you as so much, you, you're a I'm a therapist and you're a therapist and you're process oriented. You're looking what's going on here. And, um, and, and one of the things that, that I see happening, you, you are someone uh, who is pointing at these invisible forces that are controlling and, and those who can't see that are, are frustrated by that. Yeah. But, I, but I, there was something I, I wrote in one of, in, in my manual um, uh, that I, that it kind of looks like this that I give to everyone when I do workshops, mm -hmm. but there's something in the very front. And these are all these things that I wrote. And, and, and I, and so I tell people we're, we are only one question away from being connected yeah. from learning about one another's journey. And that one question only comes when we are willing to be open to hearing another truth outside of our own. And so that, so that, that, disconnection which i think is going on all over this country and is only becoming more apparent of how different our worlds are is because of the me too and the black lives matter uh, just recently the civil rights commission uh, asked me to help work with about 150,000 employees and i said why why are you calling me now and, and they said well since black since the black lives matter and george floyd 
uh, our employees for the first time are telling us about all the microaggressions that they're experiencing here. And they said, and our managers and our directors have no idea what to say, how to respond to them, except reiterating uh, we're equal, you know, hiring, you know, equal playing field, everything. And, uh, you know, and, and so they just give out the mission statement, but it just escalates. Mm. And, and, and there, there's, there's a comment that recently was, was made to this woman about uh, four years ago, okay, at a major um, rally, in which he looks at this woman and he says this, he's a black, member of the Black Lives Matter. And he looks at her and he goes, why do I have to be belligerent before you'll even listen to me? Mm-hmm. And this is how she responded to her, to him. Young man, this is the inappropriate place for you to be doing this. If you really want to do some real change, go to the state legislatures. Mm. This is not the right, right place, nor is your tone of voice talking to me like this. And so it just escalated. Mm-hmm. And that woman was Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And, and, and so I don't believe, and here she is, you know, running the Democratic Party, supposedly, you know, writing, fighting for the rights of black people. Yeah. There is something else that when you talk about the invisibility, I think I think more of it that something's missing in our dialogue. So I'm going to propose to you how I wished or had hoped that she would have responded. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is what I, I have longed for all of my life. So it would have been looking. And I'm, I'm going to have you think about, wow, I've never heard anybody say that or even okay. thought about it. Okay? okay. So it's like this. Young man, what is your name? Ah, hi, I'm Hillary. And I want to be really honest with you. It's really scary when you came up to me. It's scary because I've never had a black man this close yelling at me. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of my friends aren't people who look like you. I live in a bubble, a white bubble. And most of the time I have been trained and witnessed and read that when black men come up to the tone of voices you, it's going to lead to violence and abuse. That is what I have been indoctrinated to learn through movies mm-hmm. and all friends telling me and the newspapers. And you're right. Why do you have to be belligerent before you, have, you can be heard by me? Why weren't you heard in our classrooms? Why weren't you heard in your communities? And maybe the reason why is because we've never gone into your neighborhoods to get to meet you. We've never ever had to walk into neighborhoods, go be poor, to not uh, be educated, to not have a, to have struggle every day to have a home. And today, I want to admit my ignorance and my fears. That has nothing to do with you, but rather that it's inside of me. Mm. And I want to tell you this: I want to sit down and talk with you, so that you don't have to feel like you have to be belligerent before you'll be heard. And I and I and I said it, and I need to live up to it. Is I said, why do we not believe George Floyd? Why did we have to have a video mm-hmm. to believe it really happens? Mm-hmm. And there is so much I do not see. There's so much I do not hear. And today you gave me an opportunity. Now think of what I just said. Yeah. When was the last time you heard a person in a position of power of, who is white say that when they're confronted? It's not even within your life experience. It's not even in your, your, your realm of possibility. It's not even in my possibility that I've seen it. Yeah. That, that, that I was pushed 
because I realized one day when I was role playing, I was saying everything that I wished I would hear a white person say. Mm -hmm. All of my life, I have been trained to caretake white people because if they got angry, got irritated, they got upset yeah. with me, I could, could lose a job, I could be labeled. Yeah. And, and so that's the power that you have. If I didn't like you, Marcel, I couldn't have any of the power to do any of that with you. I couldn't get you fired. I couldn't have you labeled. I couldn't have you blacklisted in the whole community. No, yeah. I don't even come close to that. And so I have generations of how to tone it down so that you'll be happy, content, feel safe and in yeah. control. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I am hearing uh, an open heart in that response. That's not about, you know, um, um, defensiveness and you're telling me I have to fix this and responding in that way. It's just openness. Well, I think that, that what I, I think, what, you know, there are several things. One is, is to have to look at something that you don't have to look at. Mm -hmm. To look, to make the invisible visible. Yeah. And then perhaps the more difficult task of all is to share with your white colleagues and friends and family to talk about the privileges that you have that people of color don't have. Yeah. And that to, and then what I always like, I always tell people, I love you to look at my face when you say things. And then when you see me pulling back or quiet or, or that I'm having an impact, that you actually ask me, yeah. what's coming up when mom? So that, so, that, so, so that when that young man was talking to Hillary, that she looked at his reactions, looking to see if she has any compassion or empathy, yeah. or is she getting defensive or being in denial or ready to blame him? You see, I think that the reason why I'm, I'm think today, why I'm so relevant and so needed is because we're beginning to uh, feel that blaming, being in denial, attacking, mm -hmm. uh, changing the topic is the norm. That that is the normal way. And they see so many adults talking like that. Yeah. And, you, and you see the, you know, the, the proud boys, you see the president. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see all these legislators, all these senators, 100, what, 176 Republicans signed up that they did not believe this election was legal. And that the president won by a landslide. And I mean, it's amazing, but, but the, the question might come up is, is that the ability for a white person to deny the facts and actually convince 72 million people that it's true? Yeah. The ability to do that, that that's how much white privilege gives them the opportunity to do that. And it's astounding. And, and the times right now are, are so discouraging because people are going, if they can't even believe that 306 electoral votes is different than 236, if they see it right in front of them and they can't even believe a number, then what would make them believe in someone's story mm. that has no data or yeah. a video proof that it really is true? Yeah. And that's why I think that the work I do in terms of hard work mm -hmm them to hear a story and what it means when they see a human face what it does in the face of all that's going on today what how it affects them yeah emotionally and generationally yeah I, I really appreciate that and what that brings up for me moon wise is 
this culture war that I'm, I'm seeing, you know, and it feels to me and it seems to me that it has to do with cities versus rural countryside kind of. And the, the folks in the, in the outside of the cities are very concerned about their status quo changing. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. But I think when you look at it, <clears throat> when you look at who's in the rural areas, it's white people. <laughs> and so, yeah. so I, I think, and, and I, so I think that that really is. And, and, and when Donald Trump says, uh, let's make America great again, are people thinking about all the blacks and Latinos and yeah. Asians and gays and international people? So I think that, that, that what we have not wanted to look at was that Many people, when they say that, I'd like to go back to where it was before, mm -hmm. when we were in control, when we were the majority. Yeah. And what they really mean, and, and, and some are more, much more out there saying it, is before you people came. Mm -hmm. And so that everything mm -hmm. was much better before you people came. Yeah. And, and just recently, it, it, you know, when you keep hearing that in 20 years to 30 years, people of color will be the majority. You, you, I used to see when I'm in a room of four or 5,000 white people, I don't see one single white person yelling or screaming or clapping. It's like, you're taking over our country. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's what history does. When you write history, you're able to say, oh, yeah. we're the first people yeah. and not the American Indians. Yeah. And when you think about it today, American Indians are the least represented group in every single fa faction yeah. of our country. And so, so that's why when I hear it, people say the rule and you know, the country and you know, et cetera, is that it is a because you think about it is how did a, a white billionaire man be able to rouse up all these people who don't even come close to his income you see i want to challenge this country could a black man could a latino could an asian multi-billionaire have yeah. led the, the 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 republican party no yeah. the prerequisite was it had to be a white man yeah. who knew how to, to talk about the white supremacy and not mm -hmm. really talk about it. Yeah, and so, yeah. so I wrote this whole paper on, uh, he had to find a scapegoat, which had to be Mexicans, mm -hmm. which had to be Middle Eastern yeah. people. Yeah. And then it had to be socialists and lefties. And, and President so, Obama before that. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so here's this country saying, well, everybody has an opportunity. Ours, when this white woman said, well, I wanna have a black man someday, but not right now, mm -hmm. maybe 10 years from now. And of course, Martin Luther King said, wait means never. And so it's, we're always at the door. And I always joke, 10% okay. When you get to 20%, people call it reverse racism, reverse sexism. Mm -hmm. And people need to remember that the greatest benefactor of affirmative action is not people of color, but rather white women. Mm. So we haven't reached that place that we're talking mm -hmm. about. Okay. Well, and so you are all about getting people to sit down and have conversations and connect. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, for, for folks listening and maybe uh, interested in this topic, like what's the utility of, of having a conversation, white folks uh, and other folk, people of color as well, if they're interested, but what's the utility of, of like me having a conversation with my neighbor who has a back the badge sign? And so how do you have that conversation? I think the, the, the first thing one is, is, um, well, my uh, first question there, if, if I could pause you okay, there, is, okay, okay. you know, this, this sign represents to me that the police are always right. They, these yeah. are, you know, they, these are our heroes, uh, uh, you know, like the troops, support the troops no matter what. 
you know, don't question why they're over there doing stuff, but just support them. Yeah. And, and, and the same with this, this sign with the police. Right. And so, you know, uh, and I had, I had a conversation with, with, with someone who lives close to me. Um, but I'm just wondering like, like how important is it? That, how, how did it, how did it go? It went, it went okay. It needed, it, it, it was the beginning of what needs to continue to be a conversation that I'm, I'm grappling with, like, is my energy better spent doing that? Or is my energy better spent um, contributing to organizations or doing some work that's going to uplift people of color? Well, 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 I was going to stay with you for a moment. What was frustrating about the conversation with, with this person? The, the frust, I guess the, the, un, the, the um, resistance to, to like having some re, uh, to, to, um, reflection, like the, the thinking about and questioning their own beliefs, you know, that was, that's the most frustrating. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that when people don't self-reflect or, or look at something, it, it is frustrating. And um, was he open to hearing you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was trying to stay open to hearing him too. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult because I, you know, and I, I went into it with a, a, a lot of uh, preparation on my part to just hear, to just listen, to try and listen, not, not it be about a, like a, a debate club. Mm-hmm. And uh, were you able to tell him how you felt about what he said? I was. And was he open to hearing that? To a certain degree, I guess I I I'm, I get a little bit stuck on, you know, stays stay the stay the same. You know, there wasn't like a lot of movement, and that frustrates me. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I think there's a Buddhist saying which is 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 that we do not learn from experience uh, unless we're open to, to experiencing something, and I think that that's really true. Yeah. And so I was working with a group of folks because I do train people how to do mediations. And one of the things I said is when people get defensive, it's always important to ask them what they're defending. Mm. So in the, in the color of fear, I don't know if you've ever seen my film. Oh yeah. Color of fear. Oh yeah. So in there, I, I do this, this um, uh, intervention in which uh, people go, that's such a classic. Where'd you get that from? And so they talk about it all the time. And, and what I said was it happened where, where a white man did not believe the story that a black man shared, which was in that film, mm-hmm. uh, where he talks about the spikes are facing him because he's a black man. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the white guy says, well, don't you think maybe that's just because you're being a victim or making that up? I don't believe that the people are really like that and do that to you. And so I simply took what he said. and I said, so what keeps you from believing him then? And he says, well, I just don't believe, he, you know, I think he just does it to himself and he should just, you know, get on with his life. Mm-hmm. And so I said, but, but what if it were really true and you didn't know about it? And I think that that's really part of it, okay? Because I think that, that when, as a therapist, and for both of us being a therapist, what, what happens when a child talks about uh, incest in a family? Mm. What happens if somebody brings up that, some, that their father or their mother is having an affair? Uh, and so what happens is the family system fights really hard. Mm-hmm. because it, it feels like it's threatening the whole family system. Yeah. And I strongly believe that it would be very difficult for people to 
believed that our soldiers were all sent to the Middle East to overthrow Saddam rather than it was for oil. Uh, and it would be painful them to find out their children or their sons and daughters died because of the greed over oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this very same is, is what happens if in fact, Trump just simply wanted the power and only cares about himself. Uh, what would that be for people who strongly believed in him? Yeah. You know, and, and I think, so I think that when we have an investment mm -hmm. emotionally and, 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 and maybe financially and politically, that it's hard for us to believe. In fact, there, there's a, a epithetic same, a saying that I have that I was teaching uh, trainers and it was, how does it feel to know that what you were told might not have been the truth? Hmm. You see, that's a tough one. Yeah. Where you base your whole life on that. Yeah. And so I think that, that that's where I began to have the compassion, Marcel, is to realize that there's an investment that they have that they believe strongly that, that, that Trump is for the, the little guy, mm -hmm. even though the, none of the things tell you that he's benefited any of them, but they want to believe that. They want to believe that more yeah. than anything else. Yeah. And also underneath is, is, is also that, that we're the good people and those other people are just lazy, uneducated. Mm -hmm. And so, so what does it take for them to look at that? So the reason why I don't go and approach it politically so oftentimes is that I approach it more of, um, uh, of us talking to each other, which is, is let me share, you, share with you how it affects me personally, yeah. as my own person. And because I think we can battle third person concepts continuously. Okay. So, so I have a whole set of questions, for instance, okay, uh, that I give people, and it's these five or six inquiries, which helps people when they're hearing someone's story. Say you start talking about your experience of watching white racism, okay? So what I have to go back and say to you is, so Marcel, what I heard you say was, there were so many things that we that you do, you have privileges as a white person mm -hmm. that very hurts people of color. Tell me more what you meant by that, number two. What angers you about that privilege that you have? What hurts you about that? What's familiar about that experience of denial or whatever, and then, what do you need or want? And you see, so what happens is it forces me to come from a place of curiosity. Yeah. It comes from, of course, we come from a place of compassion and curiosity. Unless people are taught that, what ends up is that they, they only learn how to attack, yeah. uh, blame, and yeah. be in denial. Yeah. You see, so, and, and our problem today is that we keep trying to, to go backwards instead of saying, I'd like you to show, mm. I'd like to have a different model with you when you and yeah. I this conversation yeah. so i set a foundation for us to both have a chance to connect because i know exactly the kind of conversations you had i mean that's how i came into this work uh and also i grew up in a family where everyone just yelled no one really heard each other mm -hmm. and everything was about winning and yeah. and and you know everything like this and so when i look at donald trump's family according to his aunt that his parents told him that only losers only losers admit they don't know something mm -hmm. only losers uh, 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 end up on the other end. You're a winner. And so even if you get it wrong, don't ever admit it. And yeah. so it became his uh, MO for the rest of his life in his work. So he didn't really model that. We need models. We need yeah. models. And yeah. we need, we, I think someone like you needs a cabinet level position where demo <laughs> seriously demonstrating what this looks like. And it's given, given the power, given the backing by the highest office in the land. 
Well, you know, it's very funny you said that because um, I, I come from a different perspective because a lot of people say that to me a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Is that I think that many leaders have often said that it's up to each of us. And I often feel much more at home in person with people. Yeah. But I believe in the Gandhian approach that everything is like a ripple. Mm -hmm. And I remember Bruce Lee, when he opened up his first martial arts training center and with his, with his eventual wife. And she said, but this is a dump. And she, he said, but you're the one who told me that I could be anything I want. And so he took the, a pebble and he dropped it into her palm. And he said, and now it begins. Hmm. And I strongly believe that, that each person and each group that I work with then goes out someplace else. I also believe something very strongly, Marcel. I lived in the 60s. When I, I loved the 60s, I lived in Haight-Ashbury. And, and there was so much about community and connection yeah. and questioning authority and reading alternative books on, on, and points of view. And that period of time profoundly affected me. But what else, something else I realized was, is that once you have that kind of experience, you know what it feels like. Mm. And you mm -hmm. can't settle for anything else. Mm -hmm. I think when people come to my workshops and they experience yeah. listening, responding, hearing each other, the connection, that they'll never be the from same. Right there. Yeah, and they'll want it again to duplicate yeah. it again because yeah. it was so loving and caring. Mm -hmm. And I thought so that's what I believe. So mm -hmm. it's not the quantity, it's the quality. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and, and so I believe, imagine, like, like John Lennon said, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. We are not alone. We just, yeah. people make us feel like we're alone. But in fact, we're all very powerful. And there are many more like us in the world that we know. Yeah. 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 And I, I love that you reminded me of that. I wanted to, to hit on that, this, this natural high that comes from being vulnerable and being seen and seeing someone. Mm-hmm. And the aliveness uh, just, that's there. Yeah. There was a football team. You won't believe it. I, I don't know if they read one of my cards or something. But I guess it was the Cleveland Browns. Okay. They, they were like really low on the totem pole for a long time. <laughs> they and still so people are, didn't, I think. Yeah. No, though, actually, they're doing fairly well. Okay. And, um, and But just what happened was um, uh, the, the coach got them together. He said, I think what we need to do is have a connection with each other. So he had everybody pair up with somebody. And they continuously kept doing it. And they had to do three things was to tell the person their history mm -hmm. and their hopes. And I think there was one more H thing he did in there. Yeah. And every person, they said they never felt so close together. And they had to keep doing that with each other until they got to know each other. Yeah. And then they became a community and team. Yeah. And I think that think about what is that simple thing of learning about a person's story. Yeah. Along with that, imagine if corporations, schools, uh, workplaces, therapists, educators did that mm -hmm. with the students, et cetera, and with themselves. Yeah. Imagine what a different world we would have. Yeah. Radically, radically. Yeah. Uh -huh. And um, one of the things that, that that brings up for me is um, how, you know, you talked about, we don't, we don't have models to, to look back at in terms of a lot of this. We, we, we have to, we have to look forward and kind of de develop this. And uh, um, I think for so much of like, you know, this show is called honorable evolution because I think that for a lot of our 
physical health domains and other health domains, we, we can look at our ancestors and say, you know, something like eat less and move more. You know, they did a lot more. They did that. And we need to kind of, if we want to be, stay healthy and, and uh, prosper, we move in that direction. But as far as um, living with someone who doesn't look like us, it's, it's, we don't have, we don't have, I don't know if we have models to look at. Well, someone once asked me, what is your model for, the, for what you do? And I said, well, a loving, caring, nurturing family. And, you know, uh, I think that, that if you've ever traveled internationally, mm-hmm. it's a very humbling experience yeah. at times. And I think that if you really, truly go, you try and learn the language and try and learn the people and things like this. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's ever traveled could tell you how beautiful it is. Do you know how many people, you know, before, um, I think it was um, the immigration issues that went on in this country mm-hmm. uh, with the Mexicans, et cetera, that close to 80% of the people in this country did not have a passport. Hmm. Wow. And do you know what they That's... were saying? America is the best place to live. <laughs> yeah. Crazy? Yeah. So, Imagine that. Yeah. And so because they had never traveled anyplace else. Yeah. And they didn't really get to know the people who were different here. Yeah. But also, I think that that um, uh, uh, what I learned when I went around the world was not only how beautiful people were, but how generous and how differences were so obvious. And, and so I learned how to embrace them. Mm-hmm. And so I was telling audiences, I said, I could put you all together. I'm going to pair you all up. There could be like a hundred thousand of you in a room and I pair you up. Then when I get done, I will ask you, what was it like? Do you know that almost every single person to a T will say this? I was just shocked. You know, when I paired up with Marcel, I find out that he feels out the same way that I do around mm-hmm. connection and community. Yeah. How he feels about, you know, people who uh, are, are racist. I, I found out that the, God, we have so much in common. Now, not one single person in the room would do this. You know, when I paired up with Marcel, oh my God, I didn't realize how different we were. Mm-hmm. In fact, there were a lot of things that, that he did that were different that I thought, I've never thought about making good use of those. Yeah. In fact, I never thought in that way. And I really want to thank him. Like he, he just has all these different ways of doing things. I've never heard that once in, in all the years I did my workshops. Mm. And so what we all did was the differences were for, for celebration, but not that I could learn something, mm. not that, that uh, I could uh, have it affect the way I practice business, therapy, yeah. education, or anything yeah. like this. And so, so, and then also, how do we make sure you don't talk about it? We do things like this, you know, Marcel, deep down, we're all the same. Mm. Uh, we have more similarities than we have differences. Now, mm-hmm. also take a good look at this one. When I say, you know, all the things that Marcel, you and I have in common, what I really found, realized what that was all about is I listed all the things in which you're like me. Mm-hmm. How narcissistic. <laughs> and it makes it, I'm trying to mm-hmm. convince you, aren't you lucky? Mm-hmm. Some qualities mm-hmm. that are like me. So it's, yeah. it's really, again, all about me. Yeah. And, and what I joke about people about the United States is, isn't it funny? The abbreviation for the United States is us. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And then we also believe that Americans 
are the only ones who live here, not Canadians, not people in Central America or South America. We are the Americans. And so there's a way in which we just make it all here. Yeah. And we even do that one about what we have in common. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, appreciating, appreciating differences. And uh, it made me think about, yeah. uh, <clears throat> you know, I practice Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and uh, here I, you know, go to my, my place of uh, study. And um, if you make eye contact with someone, when you go in, you, you say hi, but if you don't, you, you know, you know, the, you know, I don't care. This is one of the, the white rules. I'm, I'm becoming a lot more familiar with my, my, and, um, and, you know, when I go travel and go other places, like anyone who comes in says hi to every single person who's there. And um, that, you know, that takes me back to some of this, like, you know, seeing this stiffness and staying within your lines, you know? Yeah. But I think, I think when you say stay within your line, I think what you really, uh, another word for it is staying within the white norm lines that have been That's, created for what, yes. is, what is professional. For instance, I just, uh, when I go every place, people always have me go to lunch before my keynotes. And then they have people around and they go, we'd like to introduce you to, to all these people, what they do here and their titles. And so this is what I always do. Well, I said, thank you. I think I, I'd appreciate that, but I'd like to try something different. Mm -hmm. What I'd like you to do is to introduce to me your name and your ethnicity. And I would like you to tell me something about yourself that I ordinarily would not know just by looking at you. And I do mm. not want you to identify the work you do. Mm. Or another one that I did at an agency that they had a lot of issues. I said, I'd like you to go around the room and tell me your name and ethnicity and the issues that are go on in this agency that affect you professionally and yeah. personally and as a person of color or as a white person. Yeah. Oh my God, it went on for two hours. People were crying. Mm -hmm. Some people told them all about their microaggressions, et cetera, that they experienced. And then the supervisor who was there, who wanted us to introduce each other like that. And then I, when I did it differently, said, oh, my God, I work with all these people, Munoz. I didn't even know any about this. So I said, maybe two questions that you want to ask yourself. Why don't you know? Mm -hmm. Second one is, why do you think they didn't tell you? Yeah. And would they be brave enough to tell you why they didn't tell you. Yeah. And, you know, and that became a much more deeper one. And so mm -hmm. I think that, that that opportunity is always sitting there. Yeah. That bravery is, is really what's, what's resonating with me today in our conversation. Most one uh, was, is this, this having the courage to, to um, cross that threshold in our, in our, in our dialogues with other people. You know, and well, you know, it's very funny. I was just doing a, a, a recording recently for um, uh, a major uh, psychotherapy institute, and um, and so afterwards, they asked, they could ask me questions, and someone said, um, she said, I'm really scared when I'm a black woman. And every time I get ready to come out to the stage, I'm really scared. And and, and how can I overcome that? And, and what I said to her is, I'm scared every single time. And she said, I can't believe that. I said, yes. I said, do you, do, does anyone even comprehend that I'm a person of color, a Chinese American man mm -hmm. walking out to literally thousands of people, sometimes on a stage, of people I don't even know. And that I'm going to talk about a topic that is not just a conceptual one or a historical one, but one that affects my, my family and my entire ancestors and my child and I'm gonna be talking to a room full of people who represent those same people 
-hmm. in hopes that they'll understand and come together. So I say, I'm scared every single time. Yeah. And she said, so what makes you go out there and share? I said, because if I don't, that's what I always think, if I don't, my, my son will have to face these people with the same attitudes and behaviors that often made me feel less than on a 24 seven everyday level of my life. And that it is still going on today with such ferocity yeah. and with such legality. Mm. And so I get scared and I'm also, so I believe the people who are courageous are just as scared as anyone else too. And, I, and someone once said a courageous person is just someone who's scared, but they hung in there 30 seconds longer. <laughs> and I think that that's true. Yeah. I think everyone is. And I think mm. that that's what I want to teach people is don't wait for the right moment. The words will come to you. Mm -hmm. What you have seen and what you have felt has, has always been there. You know, the, you ever heard, seen that film Freedom Riders? And it's actually about these young black uh, uh, boy, men and women who try to get onto the, to the debate uh, uh, circuit, okay? To do debates with other colleges. Did you know that blacks were not allowed to go on any campus at all in this country uh, because, simply because they were black? And so there happened to be this one college that decided to meet with them, but not at their college, but at a farmhouse area, okay? But anyway, excuse me, not, not a farm, but, but at, a, at a neutral college or something mm -hmm. like this. And so they're having the debate going back and forth about uh, a freedom. And uh, <coughs> the black student gets up and because he starts to talk about the, the, the white person said, this is not the right time uh, to push such you know, thoughts. And this is long before Martin Luther King and everything. And what happens is, uh, it's way in the 1800s, and, oh, wow. and the black student gets up and he says, the right time, the right time. When I drove here last night, we were on our way here in South Carolina, and there was a mob of white men burying a black man, and his charred body was hung there. For the first time in my life, I saw something like that. My father talked about it. I cried and I screamed. I couldn't even sleep last night. And he said, the right time is now. And it is our right and our duty to stand up and fight and say something. Yeah. When, our, our, when we treated with so unjustly, the right time has always been right now. Mm. And I thought about that. I thought, yes, it's true because we, we have been waiting for the right time. Yeah. And, and, and we're waiting for a, a leader to lead us again, but we shot them all <laughs> we shot so many of them. Yeah. And so, and so what we're looking for today is, is ourselves really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to take the mantle and do it. Yeah. And you know, you know, I did it myself because I was a teacher in a classroom mm -hmm. and my mother was shot uh, 15 years before there was another student who shot my mother five times in the head in a robbery. Yeah. That's how I came to do this work. Yeah. So it took a dramatic yeah. uh, incident to have changed my life to do the work. Otherwise, I'm not so sure if I would have done it. Yeah. I would have probably been content 
to work with my black students and Latino students in my special ed classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and my that, life could have taken could have taken many turns. That that um, your your story your your hero's journey of of rising up from that is what I'm hearing you say in these moments of difficulty is right. You know the the thirty seconds extra is not shrinking back and and going away, but stepping towards. Well, well, to be honest with you, in my life story, I write about for three years after my mother's murder, I was literally useless mm-hmm. in the classroom. I cried every day. Um, uh, I was really traumatized. Yeah. And, uh, and I finally went into therapist, into therapy, became a therapist, and then worked with manure violent and eventually onto these mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. To be really honest with you, I, I I could have gone any direction. To be honest, I think it's kind of like you know uh, Malcolm X when he meets you know the Muslims when he's in in, in jail. Mm-hmm. But he said I could have gone a totally different way, and so I think that that I was fortunate in that way. And I remembered when I told my story about what happened to my mom in front of six hundred people in a national armory. A woman screamed out of the audience, "Oh my God! It was my son who killed your your mother." Yeah. And, and what are the chances of us connecting? I mean, think about it. And then what my brothers and sisters don't know is I, I, I wanted to know more about the man who killed my mom. Mm-hmm. And so I looked in the phone book and then I came across another, a person's last name and I called and the woman said, why do you want to know about Anthony, the man who killed my mom? And I mm-hmm. said, well, I told him why. And she said, well, I got to tell you something. I know who you are. And I said, how do you know who I am? Because, because you come to put flowers on your mom's, on your mom's uh, deck at her home. And I said, how do you know that? She goes, because we rented your home. Wow. And I went, oh my God, the relatives of the man who killed my mom rented our home. Hmm. And she said, and then she said, but there's more connection, she said. My cousin killed my other cousin and I went to his trial and I still didn't find out why. And you may never find out from Anthony why. And so that's why I continued this work because I feel like when I look back at his life story, which I found out later on, mm-hmm. was that he was a young black boy in junior high and he was caught gambling in the bathroom. And those days he didn't know what to do with black boys so they simply transferred him. Mm-hmm. He held on to the bathroom door and screamed and cried and said, please don't transfer me. My friends and my family are in here. But they transferred him far away. And who knows what happened to him in those 15 years. But somewhere along the way, I tell people is that we all played a part in that. We first started deciding that he was not important enough. And I look mm-hmm. at audiences and I said, what had happened if 15 years ago, if someone said, no, Anthony, we're not going to transfer you. Come here, young man. I want to find out how we failed you. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about your family and what you have to go through to survive. Perhaps my life would have been different. Yeah. And I think that we have that opportunity every single day of our lives to want to hear someone's story. No more different than, than the, the next door neighbor who puts up about the badge. Mm-hmm. There's a story behind it. Yeah. To which he feels threatened that his family told him these things. Yeah. That makes him put that up there. Yeah. yeah. I, I I so appreciate you sharing your 
your journey and your heart here. And, uh, and what I'm hearing you say is <clears throat> that this, this neighbor, our neighbors, where whoever they are, have a, have a story too. And whether or not that's in line with how we think they, they should be or how they should be thinking, we, 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 sh- we're probably going to get closer to them and, and um, yeah. have more effect if we can honor that. Yeah. And I think it's not going to, it may take the rest of your life with your dialogue with your next door neighbor, yeah. but that's what it's going to take to also make it safer for me. Yeah. I wanted to, to close reading something to you that I Please, wrote. Yeah. I have like four or five books coming out this year. And this is, this is one of something, things I write about what's going on today. And this one happened when I started to see us just this country so polarized. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this. I believe that we are all tested, maybe not in the way we planned or wanted, but when the time comes, we will either act with courage and goodness or with fear and silence. For each of us deep down knows what is right and what is wrong. And it is at that moment when we are tested that our history is written. To be remembered, are to be looked back on with regret. It is a choice that we each must make for ourselves and for those not yet born. For each decision we make in life affects everything and everyone from that moment on. Every time we do not speak up, someone always pays a price for our silence. And that same price is also exacted on who we become and who we do not. So you see, it is where the road ends that our path often begins. Mm. Beautiful. And thank you. Thank you, Monwa. Thank you. It's an honor to be here today and yeah. for us yeah. to get to meet and to talk. Yeah, and definitely. We enjoyed it. Very grateful. And yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just such a, a fan of, of your work. And I'm, Oh, thank uh, you so much. Um, yeah. I, I'm very inspired too. And, I, and I'm wondering if I could just take like one minute of your time to show you a video that I made. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. And it's a video to um, get people to talk. That's the purpose of it. So- The, the part that I think I, that I would add on to that, something that we, we touched on today, is that um, uh, 
when I told my story about Anthony and my mom being shot, I could see the tears in your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so it'll always be the last part that we talked about, Marcel, and that is, it's how you respond back. So, so that what you, what you wrote at the end is just half of it. The other half is how do you respond okay. so that, so that we then complete the circle in the relationship. And then when, when you respond to me is, is how do I take that in? So we can now start the conversation. Okay. Yeah. So that always that one part. So it would, it would be nice to have seen in your, in your um, video of two people talking that okay. are and that really not just holding each other, but having a conversation. Okay. So you can hear their voices interacting so that the last part is uh, to respond. Because okay. I, I always put one in is, is how to mindfully listen and then how to mindfully respond so that you create a relationship, not just one where it's, it's basically one way. Okay. Yeah. Because and, it reinforces for white people, we need to stop talking and just listen. But that, that is so infuriating for people of color because we still want a conversation. I think that what, what, what whites misinterpreted that mm. is, is if you want to hear what I have to say, then don't question me when I'm done. I see. Validate me. Okay. If I, and, and, if, uh, and if I ask you to stop talking, it just means is, are you want to share the time so we have a conversation? Or do you want to end up doing all the talking? So it's really a balanced one of, of the, you could keep doing listening, responding, listening, responding back and forth. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. And, and while it's I still- a beautiful image that you have. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I just, I'm doing lots and lots of online trainings and workshops all over the country. So the people who have been used to always seeing me in person, that, that I would love to be able to connect with them in that way, which I think is going to be the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also I found out that they're just as profound online as they were in person. People are so shocked that mm -hmm. they feel so close. Yeah. So I've tried, but I think it's because of the questions I asked and the, and the connections they made. Okay. So, and I think that's still possible. It's a, it's a, good, a beginning of a good relationship. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, I'm, okay. I'm so honored. So grateful. Um, oh, you're so But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me